for those that put the lyrics up. It's been a long time since I've seen the actual traditional lyrics on the screen. Uh, that was wonderful to see as well. Isn't it interesting that uh, we see those lyrics get changed with, with the more biblical illiteracy that we see, that people don't understand that those significance. Thank you, Pastor. And uh, as well, today, I would say, that was just for commentary for free, just skip that if you need to. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's so great to see Pastor and Valerie here today. Thank you for uh, the invitation to come and speak and to address your good people here. I've enjoyed all of my opportunities to worship with you. And, and uh, last visit was, uh, was just a, a, a visit. I brought Linda to have that experience. We visited you online during the uh, different shutdowns that we've had as well. And so we, we, I wouldn't say I've really gotten to know you yet, but I am looking forward to doing that better each time that we come. Uh, we will be, I'll be back again in October. I believe you're hosting a fellowship for the Wisconsin Regional later this year. And then I also have an opportunity to be back with you and speak in November. So I'm really looking forward to spending time with you this, uh, in these uh, remaining months for 2021. Uh, uh, Pastor Rich kind of assigned me as, as a person responsible for things. Well, I don't know how that is uh, in, in many ways because honestly, when I first met him and Valerie, uh, I fell in love with what they do as, as God's call upon their ministry. Uh, I was saved in, as a, between my junior and senior year in high school in northern Illinois, Woodstock, Illinois, just about an hour from here is where I'm from. And uh, uh, spent last night with mom and dad and uh, visited with them a good bit and was able to come up and see you all today. Uh, but uh, I came to the Lord in 1980. That was the summer of my time when I responded to the gospel. And uh, in the first of the biblical themes that created or generated the, just a, a, a hunger for the knowledge of the Word of God was Bible prophecy. And so pretty much from my baby shoes in the faith on, uh, uh, prophecy has been a biblical theme in my heart. And so when I met Pastor Rich at the, uh, uh, at the pastor's fellowship that he referred to, I just I instantly was drawn to him, went, introduced myself to him, found out what his passion was. And I said, well, I'm bringing you to Indiana to preach in our church. And I want you to come and share uh, this theme of prophecy. I have believed uh, for a long time. Uh, that what we understand about next things, what we believe is, is the eschatology of our worldview, it will change everything about who you are, what you do, how you approach life. What you believe happens next in God's prophetic timetable will change what you are today, how you live today. And that is a simple fact of life. You cannot get away from that reality. If you believe hard things are ahead, you're going to have one way of living. If you believe that the blessed hope is the next thing that's coming, you have an expectant, joyful, can't wait for that to happen kind of a way. To look. And therefore, therefore, we will live in light of what we believe happens next. And so when I heard what he had to say about that, I said I want to find a way to get him in as many churches as I have opportunity to have that happen because of what I believe about that. Okay, now because of that, I want to take us to a prophet's passage today. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're looking at this prophet all day today. We're going to look at two well-known passages of this prophecy uh, this incredible book has been long considered among the highest of all the Bible's uh, literature in, in its royal, in its majestic caliber. 
uh, when it comes to the message that's contained within it. There are lots of favorite books that we have in Scripture, and, and I imagine if I asked you your favorite book, it might be what one you're in currently uh, that you're being blessed by. It might be one that you've recently learned, or maybe be that standby old go-to favorite that you have. Uh, for some people, they think of the prophets, they love Daniel because it's so favored with those amazing stories of faith and the prophecies that he has so critical to our understanding of the scriptures. Uh, others like Ezekiel because they've got those incredible visions. I mean, what's with all those wheels and things spinning in the sky and the fire and all? It, 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 I don't even have an answer for all of that. I've not been smart enough to figure that out yet. All I know is that you can only just stand back like he did and go, Lord, you are God. And that's where it is with Ezekiel, and people respond to that. Isaiah is favored, though, by many because of this prophet's ability to capture in words the awesomeness, the, the sheer gravity of God in all his attributes. In other words, perhaps with no other book of Scripture, maybe Revelation, but certainly in the Old Testament, you will not find another book where you will read the scriptures that are contained therein and be, find yourself genuinely awestruck with who God is and how he is so utterly amazing and glorious in his very essence, his, his very nature. And, and Isaiah was called to proclaim the Lord high and lifted up to Israel, God's chosen people, who, for reasons of sin and unfaithfulness, had forgotten just how awesome their Lord God Jehovah was. I mean, here's Israel. They're the covenant people of God. And they had in their sins decided that no longer were they going to follow the God of their law, the God of their deliverance from Egypt, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, Israel fell into the deviant ways of the Canaanites, and they adopted the false worship of Canaanite idolatry. Here's what they did. They exchanged the matchless glory and majesty of the great I Am for that of common, ordinary idols of stone, wood, metal, clay. Israel had departed, in effect, from, from their scriptures so much that as a nation, the people needed guys like Isaiah and the prophets to call them back to this God, this God who had created them, this God who had rescued them, the God who had provided for them. And therefore, so much of Isaiah's prophecy entails this setting forth of God in his matchlessness. That's our key word this morning, this matchlessness of God. So it would cause Israel to realize the folly of pursuing other gods and return to the Lord God of Israel, the one and only true God. Scholars will look at the book of Isaiah and they'll, they'll see it mostly in two portions, major, uh, major portions rather. It's verses, uh, chapters 1 to 39 are primarily focused on the theme of judgment. Judgment from God for people that are living in sin, people, nations, so forth, living in sin. But in chapters 40, you see a shift. Chapter 40 through 66, so the primary thrust changes to an, from an emphasis on judgment now to an emphasis on salvation, on redemption, deliverance from that judgment. So the two themes work together. It demonstrates that this matchless God of Israel, he will be merciful, he will be gracious, he will save sinners from judgment if they will put their faith, put their trust in him and him alone. And Isaiah communicates this message of salvation so well that the back portion of his prophecy has been called by some to be the most evangelistic of the Old Testament. 
some of the most significant teachings about Israel, uh, of Israel, to Israel rather, about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're found on the pages of Isaiah's prophecy. And it was all recorded, if you will, seven whole centuries before the appearance of that Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah is consumed with the matchlessness of God. He wants Israel to place its hope in the one who would be born of a virgin, chapter 7, verse 14, who would be called Emmanuel, God with us, same verse, and who would be wounded for our transgressions and by whose stripes we would be healed, chapter 53, which we'll look at tonight. And it's this theme of God's matchlessness that we're going to speak of this morning. And I have you in Isaiah 40. And the reason for this passage being that theme, uh, it, it reflecting that theme, is because this passage here tra- provides the transition from the theme of judgment to the theme of deliverance. This, this awesome, this incredible, glorious God of the universe whose wrath against sin is going to result in judgment, he now starts to offer a message of hope. He desires his people to see him as the Holy One of Israel, a God above all gods. God is a matchless God. We sang it. There is none to be compared to him. Right? We all affirmed it. We all said it with our lips. We're affirming that again today. And when we realize that the message from Isaiah is that we can actually know that God, that we can relate to that God, that we can love this matchless God, that we too will turn from our sins, seek him out for salvation, and then wholly devote ourselves to follow him all the days of our lives. Therefore, today's message is entitled, The Matchlessness of God. The Matchlessness of God. Now, the prophecy of chapter 40, we're going to look at all of the verses today. Uh, we're not going, obviously, we're not going to really uh, delve or parse into every single verse, but we are going to do the flyover. Uh, we're, we're going to look at it, and we're going to see it in three sections. Uh, each of those are going to offer to us a different dimension to this matchlessness of God. And so the first section we're going to look at is verses 1 through 11. And so please note with me here, item number one, this, this portion will display the comfort of the matchless God, the comfort of the matchless God. Now, if you've been reading the book, again, as I said, for 39 chapters, you have seen this dominant message of judgment, judgment that's coming because of sin. And I have to say to you, and I think you would agree, that messages of judgment are not very comforting in nature. God is angry. He is angry at sin. He is angry at the sins of the world because he created man to worship him and worship him alone. Furthermore, he's doubly angry with Israel because they have received of his benefits. They have received of his promises. He saved them from Egypt's bondage and brought them into the promised land. And you know what they still did? They still turned away from him. Therefore, he's doubly angry with Israel. So if a reader has had any sensitivity toward God at all as you're reading through this message of the prophet, at this point you're depressed. You're desolate of heart because judgment has been sounded and the sense of hopelessness would certainly prevail in one's mind. But then the opening words of the prophecy bring us out of misery and they start to communicate hope. Verse 1, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. 
Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, it's true that the message of the prophet has been focused on judgment. And yes, it's true that even his people have displeased him with their sins. But all is not lost. Instead, rather, all can be found. There is comfort in the Lord because this matchless God is not planning on staying apart from his people forever. Instead, no, he is coming to actually be with them. Note with me in these verses that follow the comfort of his arrival, the comfort of his promise, and the comfort of his appearance. Let's look at these verses. Start with verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed... And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now, of course, these verses are very familiar to Christians because they contain one of the prophetic predictions about John the Baptist, the one who is the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when this prophecy was first spoken by Isaiah, he's referring to this future voice that's going to stand up in the wilderness. He's going to call Israel to prepare themselves for the arrival of God in their midst. It says there they were to make straight a highway for God. Israel was to spiritually clear the way of any obstacles that would prevent the impact of the matchless one coming into hearts and lives. Verse 4 particularly has grand poetic expression describing how every spiritual valley is to be raised and every spiritual mountain is to be leveled. Nothing but free and easy passage for God to move in hearts and lives. It's supposed to be Midwest prairie so that there's nothing in the way. And at that time, verse 5 says that his glory will be revealed. All flesh will see him arrive. So be comforted, sinners, because the Lord, who has been standing apart as judge from them, shall come down from the heavens and then be seen among you. Be comforted, the Lord arrives. Verses 6 through 8, speaking of the promises of God, it says here, with voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. Yes, the grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever, the comfort of his promise. So this voice cries out, all flesh is grass and as the flowers of the field. So just like grass withers in a dry sun, uh, just as a flower fades as the, after the newness of the bloom is passed, uh, even so, that's the strength, that's the durability of sinful humanity. It too withers, it fades, and the result then is just more discouragement and sadness. But the word of our God is not as withering grass or fading flower. It, is, it, it, it abides forever. And therefore, as Isaiah is setting forth the matchlessness of God, he is drawing attention that there is nothing like the promises that are contained in his word, including the promises of his arrival, that he is actually coming. 
Man is to be comforted in these promises, understanding that, yes, judgment is going to get swallowed up in the deliverance that's going to be brought through the ministry of God when he arrives in the midst of men. Then verses 9 through 11, we see the comfort of his appearance. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that, that bringest good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and the arm, his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Verse 9, is, it starts this, the comfort of his appearance. It's, it's almost like a coronal announcement. The trumpet has gone, dun da 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 like the old butter commercial, and a crown pops on your head, right? Did I just show my age on this one? <laughs> the fact that you all laughed tells me that hey, most of you got that. I'm in the right crowd. That's good. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. It's, and then it's the Lord. He's here. Coronal announcement. Jerusalem, let go your voices. Jeru Judah, don't let back. Don't hold back. Say unto the cities, behold your God. Verse 10 expresses that he's going to appear as the one with, with strength, with authority. And, and when he comes, he's going to deal with men according to their just desert. Oh, yes. Those to be punished, they shall be. And those to be commended will be rewarded as well. And for those that are oppressed, those that are stricken down, when he appears, God is going to feed them like a shepherd. He's going to gently take them into his bosom and care for their well-being and nurture. So whereas Israel had abided under judgment and punishment, in this day they're going to find a strong yet gentle God that will bring them comfort and hope. And I say to all of us for application, these verses are very encouraging to us because they tell us about the nature of God. They demonstrate his matchlessness that when judgment is deserved, he still extends mercy. When mankind withers and fades, God's promises abide. And when all appears to be lost and hopeless, God is going to be present to bring comfort, security, and tender care. What comfort, then, is there in idols? What hope is there in human ability? What encouragement is there if we're left to ourselves? Nothing matches the comfort of the Lord God, and therefore, for all that are here, if true comfort's desired, seek that comfort from him, the matchless God. Well, let's move on to the second portion of this particular chapter, this prophecy. We see here item number two, the description of the matchless God. Because now Isaiah wants to move a reader into this discussion about his matchlessness by, by taking us from that encouragement, that idea of comfort, into what we will actually see when we behold this God, when he comes into the presence of his people. And in particular, in this passage, Isaiah is going to highlight four attributes of the matchless God, four of those distinguishing characteristics that are going to show us his unique nature, and it will force us to our knees to worship him with awe and reverence. Verses 12 to 14 take note that God is matchless in wisdom. He's matchless in wisdom. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? 
Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor hath taught him. With whom took he counsel? Or who instructed him? Who taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge and and showed to him the way of understanding. This triplet of verses contains a series of rhetorical questions about the wisdom of God. All of those questions which I hope you answered in your head. No one. No one. No one. No one. Amen? No one. Verse 12 asks, who was it that measured the water on the planet? To make sure that all the drops were in the right place. And that they were the right proportions. Who took the yardstick and spread out the heavens and made sure that from end to end they were the proper distances? Who was it that calculated the amount of dirt to make up the soil in the, the plant, on the planet here? And who makes sure that all of these things are distributed correctly with the weight in mountains and hills? It's simply mind-boggling. Isaiah speaks of what science will call isostasy, uh, spells isostasy if you're trying to write that down, isostasy. And it deals with the balance of the earth, meaning that there's equal weight to support land mass and mountains, valleys and water, that everything about the earth is perfectly balanced. One of the things that's taught in isostasy, or observed rather in isostasy, is that, is that the, the water in the oceans, when, it, when the waves crash against the shore, that's actually exerting a... That's, that's all I know. <laughs> I mean, weight gets distributed in different places. Tectonic plates are kind of moving to keep things oriented. It's just the earth kind of shaking itself back into center. That's isostasy. And, and now, I ask this question. Who did all those things? Who was the one who engineered all of that to work? Who was smart enough not only to accomplish it, but then to make sure that he even designed it to work all together to begin with? Try our matchless God. Verses 13 and 14 take it further, rhetorically asking, who taught God how to be God? Who was his mentor? Who was his professor? Uh, Picture in your mind a large drafting table, and, and Jehovah is sitting on the stool working on his drawings. And there's the professor of the room kind of looking over his shoulder. What you got there, Jehovah? Let's take a look. Uh, interesting. Very nice. Uh, I have a couple questions, though. Uh, you've got a furry creature here on this drawing. Yes, I do. But I'm confused. It's got a duck bill on the front of it. Yes. <laughs> uh, dude, it's laying eggs. I know, I know, it's a platypus. Don't worry, we're throwing him in Australia. That's where all the weird, wicked stuff lives anyway. (laughs) Okay. Did that conversation ever happen? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I almost feel like I have to ask forgiveness for reducing the Lord to something that silly. I mean, really, that never happened. He had no mentor. Who taught him how to be God? Who advised our Lord in creation? Who is the source for all that he knows? There is no one that did any of these things because our God is matchless in wisdom. Verses 15 to 17, Isaiah describes how God is matchless in authority. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust in the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. 
and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Matchless in authority. When Isaiah speaks about the nations in these verses, he does so to minimize them. They have no power, no authority when compared to God. In verse 15, he describes the nations as the small dust of the scales. You know what that's talking about? That's a marketing expression. Uh, if you were to go to a, uh, a person who would be selling grain, he would have the scales out there, and you would ask for a certain portion. He would measure that portion on the scales, making sure that he's providing you with the amount you asked for. He would then brush that grain off into the sack. You wrap up your sack, you pay him for his services and for his goods, and you go home and prepare your meal. What he has left on the scale is that small dust particulate, that little film that's on the bottom of that scale that didn't make it into your bag. You know what he does with that? <laughs> Scales clean, ready for the next customer. The nations are the small dust of the scale to God. Uh, if we were to use current terms, if you open up your laptop and you see a little dust on the top of that, and you know, when you just kind of do the same thing, you blow that away. The nations are computer lint when compared to the authority of God. And so when he says compared to God, there are, there are no match for him. Verse 17 says that the nations are as nothing. They are even less than nothing. How do you get below zero for authority? But that's exactly what Isaiah says. They are completely vain. God is matchless in authority. Verses 18 to 20, he's matchless in divinity. Matchless in divinity. He that is so, I'm sorry, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, and what likeness will you compare to him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot, and he seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. He's matchless in divinity. Conjure up in your mind the likeness of God. What does he look like? What form can you manufacture in your mind as an accurate representation of Almighty God? And Isaiah challenges the people, put the workman to his skills to create this idol. Let the goldsmith plate it over with finest gold. Even the guy who has no money, he goes to a hardwood tree and takes out a cross section so that he can have an idol fashion that's not going to rot away. And which of these, which of these can come close to finding a representation of God in his divinity? God is so utterly above all that a man can imagine or think. He doesn't even possess a physical constitution or nature to begin with. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. So anything that we can muster from our minds, it is utterly apart from God's state of existence. He is God, absolutely matchless in divinity. Then in the remaining verses of the passage, 21 to 25, he describes how God is matchless in immensity. He is matchless in immensity. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sits upon the circle, the sphere of the, of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them over as a tent to dwell in. 
that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. They shall not be planted. They shall not be sown. Their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he also will blow upon them. They shall wither. The whirlwind shall take them away as, a, as stubble. To whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal? Seth, the Holy One. He gets the reader now to try to grasp the bigness of God. Verse 21, he's bigger than time because he's the, he's the everlasting God. Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Do you not understand from the foundations of the earth? He's before all those things. He's bigger than the planet spinning as a global sphere in space. He sits on that. That's his footstool we see in other passages. He's bigger than all the systems of rule and law that operate in the world. He simply blows on them to make them wither away. And he comes to verse 25, and Isaiah rhetorically asks, To whom then will you liken God? Will you liken me, or shall I be equal? What person? What entity? What God of men? What? What? What can be set next to God for comparison? Measure out that thing. It will be next to him as nothing at all. Why? He is a matchless God. Now, let's take this amazing description and add it back into the first of his comfort. And we now make a connection. We, we now connect that even though God is so utterly holy, utterly separate from anything that we can comprehend, we are comforted that it is this kind of God that is coming to us. This kind of God who has made promises in his word, who abides present in and with his people. I say to us today, this makes God so much more than the big man upstairs. He is not our co-pilot. He's not this magic charm to whip out of our back pocket as an amulet against life difficulties as if God is here to serve us. No, he is almighty God. He is caring, shepherding us in the midst of all of our trials. He's that very present help in time of trouble. We are blessed just to be spared a deserved judgment for our sins, but then to be granted the privilege of actually being loved by this matchless God, and then to be given the privilege of serving him as well. That is something about which we should all be standing in awe. And as if this wasn't already enough, we have yet the greatest verses of the passage yet to come as we wrap up this study together. Take note with me, if you would, item number three, the relatability of the matchless God. The relatability of the matchless God. Isaiah's got more to add, of course, and so he now gets across to us the fact that this matchless God with whom uh, we serve. He's not disconnected from us. He's not dissociated or untouchable. Rather, though God is so powerful that he created all things, though he's so immense that he cannot be measured or quantified, he still possesses and manifests love for his people. God, despite these matchless things that are true about him, still relates intimately with us and for us as his people. So on this, take note with me, if you will. Make sure we get, you, get, get us where we need to go. Try that one. Now we're good. Note, first of all, in verse 26, that though he created in the past, his power is visible today. Though he created in the past, his power is visible today. Note verse 26, it says, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might, 
For that he is strong in power, not one falleth. Take note here, as he's moving to the conclusion of this prophecy, emphasizing that the creator of the universe has specifically ordered every function perfectly to work together, fully in accord with all of his intention, with all of his design. Whether it's the systems of stars that are out in the sky, whether it is uh, all of the things that are involved in the, in the planet and all the, the various ologies and various e uh, ecosystems that we have, God is the one who designed all of those things and they are there to function. And he says, not one faileth. It's referring there to the fact that every system within the creation, it all works and it keeps working. God is the one who designed it all, and he did so naming every single part of it. And yet, even though he displayed that power of creation in that first week of the Genesis, his power remains visible to us all for comprehension if we will simply obey the verse. What is the command with which this verse opens? Lift up our eyes to see it. To see it. We can be very confident that God knows exactly what's going to happen. This matchless God is indeed is coming, and when he does, his awesome power will be on magnificent display, and it will be done on behalf of his people. How relatable is this to us? I ask this. Do you ever doubt God? Do you ever wonder where he is? He is saying here he's not absent, nor is he remaining aloof from the happenings of our lives. Even in the midst of what appears to be severe tragedy, God is with us. He is here. And we can be confident that the same power that was displayed in creation is now available to minister to us. If he was powerful enough to do that, he's powerful enough to take care of us. And because his power for creation is visible today, we then know that it can meet the needs that we have in our lives as well. Furthermore, sure we're in the same place. Okay, very good. B. Though he's immense beyond all things, his power is personal. Though he's immense beyond all things, his power is personal. To say that he's immense beyond all things, it, it communicates that he's unlimited. In what ways? Well, let's go down to verse 28, and we're going to come back to 27 in just a moment. He is unlimited in how? Well, God is an everlasting God. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, if he's the everlasting God, he is a God that's not limited by time in any way. That's, so that, that's not a problem for him. No beginning, no ending. Uh, as the creator, take a look at the verse, it says again, he is the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. If he has created the, the boundaries that, that, that are fixed as our creation, then he must be beyond those things because he certainly is not, the creator is never restricted to that which he creates. So he's not limited by, uh, in any way by physical things. Uh, it says as well in the same verse that the creator of the ends of the earth, he fainteth not, neither is weary. So he's not limited in power or energy. And then it also says there is no searching of his understanding. You cannot plumb the depths of all that God knows. He has no limitations on, on knowledge. He possesses infinite wisdom. Our matchless God is indeed unlimited in every possible way. And so in spite of this immensity, in spite of those things being true, if you will, his infinity... God is very concerned about and available to each and every one of us. 
He is personally aware. Now let's go back to verse 27 and see what Isaiah says to Israel. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, that my way is hid from God and my judgment is passed over from my God? No matter how troublesome life may be for any one of us, please know that we have not escaped his attention. He is personally aware of every circumstance. He even knows our situations better than we know them ourselves. And so Israel was lamenting that way. They, why is our way hid from God? Isaiah is asking, how can you say such things? Our matchless God is personally aware of everything that is going on in your lives. And so much is this, uh, so much is this true that, that the final words of the prophecy, those that are the favorites and many of you have committed to memory, he teaches us that the matchless God gives personal strength. He gives personal strength. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths, youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Many of you have that to memory, right, in your heart, that verse? He's the source of all power. He's got all strength. He's got an endless supply of these things. And he gives that power to his people when they faint, when they have no might left in themselves. It says in verse 29, he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Verse 30, even the ewes shall faint and be weary. Let's see if we can bring something up here. All right, very good. Uh, this is my son-in-law, Lucas. Uh, I have, we have two Lucases. I have a son, Lucas, and we have a son-in-law, Lucas. We just call him Luke-I for short. Uh, and uh, he is holding his two sons. Uh, Ian is on the left, and, and Wesley is on the right. And, uh, and Lucas is an awesome dad. This is a picture that was taken at a, uh, as they were getting ready to go on a little hike together. Um, my daughter, Caitlin, and, and my granddaughter, little Olivia, uh, they were off on a ladies' event together. So dad decided to take the boys, and they were going to have a hiking day together. And they love to hike. Now, these boys are three. Uh, Ian is, uh, is, is going to turn four in October, uh, uh, Wesley turned three in June, and uh, we're one of those families that when uh, our, our daughter was, and her husband were struggling to be able to start their family, they adopted Ian and then found out, boom, they were expecting one. So we're one of those families, and so those two boys are about eight months apart. And uh, they have a lot of fun, let me tell you. These guys are always busy. And uh, actually, I have six grandchildren. You know, the problem with smartphones is that they took grandparent privilege away that we can't do the whole accordion effect with our pictures anymore. So you're going to have to bear with me as I give. I promise you, there is an illustration here. <laughs> but this is some of the pictures that he took on the hike. I mean, they're climbing up these huge stairs. Now remember, these two dudes are just three years old. And he's got them out rock climbing. He's got them going through all kinds of trails. They're walking a riverbed. I mean, he just worked them and worked them and worked them. Now, the last picture that he took is really the point of this illustration. <laughs> Even the ewes shall fail. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. Also, I have to say, my son-in-law knows how to dad, right? I mean, that is really what you do right there. 
No, we've got this is what we're on, we understand. It, it says the young men, they're going to utterly fall. I remember taking our boys, and we, they were baseball players and accomplished baseball players. They did really well. And, uh, but I remember when they hit their wall when they got home, and you would not get them up the next morning because they, they, they hit their wall, they're done, they're, they fall. Well, okay, let me uh, bring that to point here. Uh, if three-year-olds in a room with all that energy going on, it has a limit. If the young athletes, they hit their wall, they've got their limit. What does that say to Henry Vosberg? What does that say to those of us who are weary or aged, feeble, downtrodden, or combinations thereof? With that awful prospect before us, Isaiah ministers to us with the most classic verse of the prophecy. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our matchless God is not concerned about our age or our abilities. What he is looking for in those who need a gift of his personal strength is their faith, their patient trust in him. We already know he's coming, and that comforts us. The God who is coming is amply described by so many of these superlatives, and we saw just those four. Well, this matchless God, he's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our trust. He will deliver. He will rescue. He will redeem. He will give you strength. And because he's personally concerned for each and every one of us, the power that, is pro that he promises to bring to you for the needs in your life are going to cause you to soar like an eagle. You will be able to run and not grow tired in the race of this life to fulfill fulfill God's plan for you. And wherever it is that your pathway leads in your walk, I say to you that we have the promise that the energy to arrive is in sufficient supply because of our matchless God, who indeed is a God like him. Who indeed deserves more your worship, your loyalty, your service, your life, your faith, more than him. There is no God like the Lord. He is the great I am. He is awesome. He is all-powerful, beyond our farthest abilities for comprehension, and yet this one and only true God is relatable, and he cares about every single one of us. Could we ever, therefore, even entertain the thought of turning away from that God? Can we even dwell on those ways that, that would take us out of his fellowship and favor? I, Isaiah wants us all to answer this challenge to, that, that, that all this spiritual evidence demands of us. It's the challenge of, of having learned these realities. Can we do anything but fall down in worship and glorify him by turning away from our sins, by receiving the gift of eternal life, by placing our faith in the matchless God that has come. You see, as I mentioned earlier, Isaiah, 700 years before the Messiah appeared, he spoke these words. Seven centuries of opportunity for Israel to, to dwell upon that, to build a hope for that, which, for that person who would come, for the Messiah to appear. And we, with the privilege of being able to look back down the corridors of history, when the Son of God did come, 
most of Israel rejected the one they should have been looking for. They fell short of the challenge of Isaiah 40. And I say, let us not be as them. Rather, let us be among those that wait upon the Lord by putting faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and then be numbered among those that follow after him all the days of our lives. If you're here today and you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I beg you, examine the evidence that Isaiah has set forth and somehow come up with an argument that there's a better way. There is none. We have a matchless God, and this matchless God is relatable, wants to relate with you. The way to do that is to turn away from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Accept him today, and then commit yourself to follow him all the days of your life. And then for those who have put your faith in Christ, renew yourself to that commitment. Remind yourself there is no God like the one who's rescued you already. You're going to spend eternity with him. Start following him now. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here today. I pray that, Lord, you would use this message in a way that you would be glorified. Anything that's been said of, of, of purely human, uh, uh, that's purely just been from Henry and of no eternal value, let that just fall away in the dust and blow away in the wind. But that which is faithful to the message that you want these folks to hear today, I ask, Lord, you would embed it in their hearts and help them to be renewed this day, that they would soar like eagles. And I pray, Father, you would accomplish this in their lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I ask this. Amen.